Hello, everyone. My guest on this episode is Dr. Eric Feigelding. Eric is a former researcher at Harvard University and holds doctorates in both epidemiology and nutrition. Throughout the course of the pandemic, he has been a quite prominent commentator and analyst on COVID-19. And in doing so over the past year and a half or so, he's also found himself uh, quite maligned by some of the other commentators and scientists for being too overreactive. Uh, he, he gets you know, epithets thrown at him like alarmist and uh, you know th- things of that sort. But for the most part, he's turned out to be uh, right on, on most of these issues. And his so-called overreactions have had uh, quite a degree of foresight. So we, we discussed that, the precautionary principle, uh, how politics has in, infected the, the pandemic, sorry for the pun there, uh, political divisiveness uh, apropos to the pandemic, and uh, these new uh, not-so-friendly variants that we have uh, now coming our way, along with Delta and Delta Plus and Lambda. I'm sure there will be more. And I'll, I'll note as well, uh, Eric mentions it at one point, the follow the science uh, political mantra that's surrounded uh, discourse around the, the pandemic. And I, I hope this is something that I discuss more in the program uh, down the road. As I've seen more and more as time has gone on here, that science becomes to a degree less of a method and more of sort of like this monolithic entity as if there is not not science a process of rigor but the science it's almost a parody of itself as if it's become this this character out of a, a douglas adams novel or something you know the science and sadly i'll see people use that concept to uphold their rigidity and uh, shut down discourse. And again, as I mentioned, I, I hope to discuss this more in the program going forward, and maybe I'll just... Like, uh, for long-time listeners of the show, I used to ramble a lot more at the beginning and try to shorten it up for your, everybody's you know, mental health and mental well-being. can only handle my bullshit for so long. Perhaps this is something I'll, I'll, I'll address on my own accord. Uh, the, the mindset that, that's solidified itself with many people, that's become not very helpful. So just a general note there, everybody. Try to keep more of an open mind about things. And, and your righteousness is not an adequate proxy for an argument. Anyway, I think I'll leave that there for now. Yep, enough of me. Enjoy the episode, everybody. Cheers, guys. All right. Well, thanks for doing this, Eric. Uh, first, let's start off. Uh, let's jump back over a year ago. Uh, when did you start doing uh, analysis in, into COVID? And did you foresee at the beginning that we would be at the state that we're in and the sort of political reaction that uh, accrued as a result of it all and how divisive things have gotten? Yeah, I think... It's been a very long year and a half. Um, you know, the pandemic really kind of 
in my mind, started around January. And I've been, you know, my Holy Mother of God, you know, warning <laughs> that this is going to be a thermonuclear level pandemic was in uh, late January, January 24th. Um, I was really upset that the WHO did not declare a public health emergency and international concern a day or two before that. And I was really, you know, I was trying to basically, there's a lot of signals coming out of China that many Western media and Western scientists don't really see. And so having relatives in China, you know, gave me some, you know, ear to the ground there that this was not normal. This is not something that China, you know, Chinese Communist Party has control over. Um, and, you know, the, the data and the actual anecdotes coming out were completely on different scale. And of course, once we saw the preprint about the r knots, you know, it was like the first paper was like 3.8. And, you know, 3.8 is about what we think it is, right? Um, mm. Between three and four, closer to four, actually. Um, because the Delta variant right now, they think it's twice as infectious and they say that's about six to eight, so two it's You know, I've, I've been doing this for way, way longer than we should, way longer than I want. It's cost a lot of, you know, personal heartache, you know, in many ways that I won't go into. And, and, and trillions. In many, yeah, and trillions of dollars, millions of people's lives lost, you know, tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people's lives, you know, really, really hurt by the virus. And of course, billions of people's lives completely, you know, turned upside down. And this pandemic is not on a scale that we've ever seen before. And we've probably already exceeded the death toll in many ways of uh, the 1918 pandemic. And so I think well, we're not done yet, right? The Delta variant is almost almost a 2.0 version of this pandemic, you know, <laughs> scene one was when the vaccine came out and all the other uh, strains kind of died out. You know, uh, act two is basically the Delta variant, you know, marching forth. Uh, it doesn't give a damn uh, how much vaccine you got. Slow down a bit by the vaccine, but it's going to keep chugging. And, you know, the, at the height of the India um, second wave, you know, IHME, Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, University of Washington, was thinking there was 10 to 14 million cases, new cases per day in India. And the total death count in India is probably between one to three million people. Yeah. We'll never know exactly for sure, but it's honestly on the scale of seven figures, a number of deaths. Definitely. And that's the Delta variant. It's, it's horrendous. And we're still at it. And we're still politically fighting. Um, U.S., you know, the virus dropped in on the worst possible presidency that a pandemic could drop in on. Um, and it's the cascade effect is still going on. And right now, the pandemic has fallen on the worst possible prime minister <laughs> uh, period in, in, uh, in Great Britain. And again, the pandemic is going to keep rolling on. Same with Brazil and all these other countries. So it's really unfortunate that the politics of it is just as horrible as the biology of it. 
Yeah, may, maybe Anthony Eden and Neville Chamberlain will will go up a few notches in the ranks in the history <laughs> of Britain. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But you gave me a a couple good things to launch off of. First, there, you, I like how you you put this into acts, and noting that this could very easily be sort of a a second act in a well, uh, a dark play of of uh, you know who knows how many acts, but. In the United States, the, the idea is that this is all over and, you know, the, the pandemic's pretty much done. And uh, President Biden said something along the lines of, uh, what was it? We, we have independence from, from the virus at, at this point in time. So what, what is your perception? And I've been uh, talking to a lot of people about this. And this sort of mentality has been going on for a while, like with the vax, when the vaccines uh, first uh, were at the end of the trials in November, you know, people already saying, oh, it's over. You know, it's just a matter of time now. So what are your thoughts on people mainly in the United States and Canada and Britain who think that, you know, it's done. It's just a few more weeks and There'll be enough immunity, and then we just got to worry about well, getting vaccines in Africa and India. Yeah, I think first of all, there are. It's no longer this, this, this. It's all fine, kind of dandy, kind of attitudes. It's not just on the right who, you know, a they thought it was a hoax to begin with, or that's overblown and it's you know it's just the flu, you know that that crowd. But even among the oh, it was serious last last year, but now it's fine. Though those I, w- I would call the the sheltered, bubbled, you know, elitist liberals who think that have just not been following what's been happening in India, mm-hmm. not been following what's been happening in countless other countries. And look, cases are surging in, in Israel where 60%, 60% are fully vaccinated with, you know, the, the, the fi- double Pfizer. UK is at, you know, 50% almost with two-thirds AstraZeneca, one-third Pfizer. But both of them are seeing case rises. Both are seeing hospitalization rises. You know, let's put it in perspective. Scotland has more cases per capita per day now than it ever had ever in the past in the pandemic, even more than even the winter surge. Yeah, Scotland has more. Scotland's hospitals, its largest hospital in northern Scotland, is now maxed out. They're in code black, no more elective surgeries. They are completely maxed out. That's Scotland right now. And Scotland is is more vaccinated than lower England, mm-hmm. by the way. And and UK is is gonna open up on July 19th and it will just be abominable. Um more vaccinated than US. Hospitalizations are soaring. Mechanical ventilation ICU cases are soaring. These numbers do not lie. Some people can still say there's there's still now a new crew of people saying, oh, this is a case demic, or oh, there's a divergence of cases and hospitalization. First of all, there's a damn lag. Anyone who understands epidemiology know that you know hospitalizations do not immediately rise with cases. There's a lag of two or three weeks. And hospitalizations there's a lag of three or four weeks. But uh, uh, deaths, I mean, three to four weeks. But right now, it, all of that is going up. And you cannot deny it. And anyone who tries to, you know, they use some fancy graph. Like basically, if you 
graph the peak of the winter, well, our current rise is just a tiny, tiny rise. But they're ignoring the nature of exponential math. Exponential math always starts out slow. Like, you know, the example of the rice uh, on the chessboard. Uh, you know, one, the, the emperor, the king asks, what do you want as payments? And there's a one grain of rice, but you double it per chessboard piece. And the emperor says, yes. But by the time you get to the end of the 64 um, chessboard, um, there's more uh, rice that the king owes than all of the rice in the entire kingdom. And But it starts out slow. One, two, four, eight. Those numbers are not uh, skyrocketing numbers. Those are numbers that most people just shrug off. But policy leaders don't understand that. Epidemiologists and mathematicians, statisticians realize if it's exponential, it's exponential at the low level, just as it's exponential. Most policy leaders only think of exponential when the curve starts looking really steep vertically, which, by the way, you can make it less steep by changing the axis very easily. That's a that's a very simple, you know, if you compress 10 days into a short thing, you can make it look very steep. Look, this is exponential means that unless you do something radically different, it will keep increasing on an exponential rate, right? Uh, you know, the, the definition of idiocy is thinking uh, of trying to do the same thing and thinking that it won't be any different. I'm probably bastardizing the quote, but you probably know what I'm talking about. It's pretty close, base, yeah. yeah. Basically, if it's exponentially growing, and the mathematics of this is always exponential, where you know one person with the original strain, one person infects three, each of those infects three more, each of those infects three more, it becomes one to three to nine to 27, right? Mm -hmm. Um that that number will just balloon very quickly. And now it balloons even faster because with an R naught of six to eight, let's just say seven, it's one to seven. By generation two, you're not at nine, you're at 49. By the, by the next generation, you're at, um, God, I can't do math right now, but um, you're at 340 something, 343. That is just, that kind of explosion is just something that policy leaders don't understand. They don't understand that if you somehow maintain the course, that it will be any different. Soon, they say, well, right now, Boris Johnson's argument is, well, you know, our hospitals, we have capacity. We might as well get people sick now than in the winter. By the way, his new healthcare minister, the previous one resigned because of a you know, cheating yeah, sex scandal, the photograph, uh, which yeah. is h- hilarious. But yeah. but the new one's actually worse. Actually, I, I liked Hancock a- after a whole year. In certain ways, you know, he did he did um, follow precautionary principle when the alpha started coming along, and they locked down early. But the new one is horrible. New one, the new one, Javid, he's a uh, he's an avid Fountainhead fan. You know, Anne Rand's Fountainhead book yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, tells yeah. you all you need to know about how his attitude will be when it comes to this COVID. And there's long COVID issues. One in seven adults and one in 12 children will have long-term COVID long-haul symptoms. That's not captured by deaths or hospitalizations, by the way. Um, and it's just, it's, 
the news and the math are both abominable, and the policy decision to keep things open will lead to greater suffering. And when it comes to, you know, I've heard during the pandemic from so many leaders, Mexico to so many other countries, they said, well, we don't need to lock down. We, our hospital beds are not full. You know, we still got hospital beds. You know, we don't need to do anything. If that was the policy of anything, why do we, why do we have seatbelt laws? Why do we have helmet laws? Why do we have speeding uh, laws? Why do we have gun control laws? We could say, well, we don't need any of these restrictions because the hospital beds are not overloaded. Mm-hmm. That is not in any way a public health morally ethical position nor a medically ethical position in any universe. But right now, uh, it's being used to justify basically, you know, population um, democide, basically. It's pandemicide, some people call it, right? That's their approach. And, you know, and burnouts, and we're not even talking about all the other infections, but the actual psychological burnout, the PTSD suffered by nurses, doctors, uh, you know, respiratory therapists, you know, all these healthcare workers is immeasurable. And again, the people who, the fountainhead fans of the world, let's just say, are just completely ignoring that. And it's just so disgusting. And of course, so now back to the U.S. thing, there are people who are just saying the vaccine will work. In certain ways, among the liberal group, um, we vaccinate a lot. That's good. But in certain ways, we oversold vaccinations. Vaccinations are great. But remember, we need two doses, not one dose. The 70% one dose criteria was, was very risky. Because we know that with the Delta variant, one dose is not enough. The Delta variant, one dose with Pfizer, it's about 30% efficacy. With AstraZeneca, one dose is about 18% efficacy against infection. Now, 30% for symptomatic infection, but 18%. But that's junk. 18% is junk. And I don't need to tell anyone about if you have 18% protection efficacy from a vaccine, you're basically not protected. And, um, and, and again, also, even though you're, you're still pretty good for more protection against deaths with two doses, about 93%, which, by the way, is no longer 98%. Israel used to find 98%. Um, um, India used to, uh, sorry, Israel used to find 98%, but now it's dropped to 93%. That's, that's a serious concern. Um, uh, and you can say that's 93 94% is still good. But I would say if you have someone immunocompromised at home, that is not good. That is not an acceptable level of risk. Um, and furthermore, if even if it's like 60% AstraZeneca for total infection, uh, 64% according to the Israel study, but Scotland got 79% for two-dose Pfizer, that's still incredibly leaky. I would never play Russian roulette with those odds. And I wouldn't play Russian roulette with those odds with children at home that are not vaccinated, elderly at home who have waning immunity. Uh, and that's why UK, by the way, is going with a third dose starting in September for all adults over the age of 50. They know that those over the age of 50 have waning immunity. And, and by the way, that's the other thing that we've kind of under kind of advertised that the vaccine works, but it does wane among the elderly. It does wane. This is why they're doing the third dose push. Uh, and Israel is also considering it. 
Um, but we've kind of oversold that, you know, vaccines are great. Yes, they're great, but you're still going to transmit. Half the people, U.S. is what, 320 million people? You divide that by half. That's the how much people are not fully vaccinated, not fully protected from Delta. And then you have to assume that with the other half, that it's it's leaky. The efficacy is with two-dose Pfizer, like anywhere anywhere from like um, 64 to 79%, you know, between the different studies. That's incredibly leaky. And so the virus will keep going through the population. And even if we increase our vaccination from 47, 48% fully vaccinated in the U.S. to 60%, which is Israel, Israel's still seeing a surge. They're still seeing hospital cases rise. It's, the Delta variant is, has told us that those people who say 60% is all we need for herd immunity, no, it's not true. With a more contagious uh, virus, you need 85% or more. I would say maybe even 90. There's a study from the Robert Koch Institute in Germany today that that says we need uh, 90% for those over the age of 65. And, and I, I kind of agree because we need 85, 90%. But and at that level, you can then release on the break. But because what herd immunity means, it's not the immunity in which all cases stop. It is the level in which there is an auto-breaking system that will slow the growth and keep growth under one for most part. But until you get to that point, you can't release the brakes because the auto-breaking system of herd immunity against um, viruses or more contagious viruses only kicks in near there. So if 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 you're saying the 60% but your goal, target goal is 90% of auto-breaking, you're not two-thirds of the uh, of the transmission decrease, it, it, the, the system doesn't work like that. Herd immunity doesn't kick in unless you're within five to 10% of the threshold. So unless you get to like 75, 80% of that, I would not ex- uh, say there would be any herd immunity, partial herd immunity at all. That's not how herd immunity works. And this is where when you have half the population unvaccinated and the other half only have 64 to 79% efficacy, let's just say 70%, that is just not enough. You would not play Russian roulette with those odds, and we shouldn't play Russian roulette with our children's futures, even if their cases are low. One in 12 kids get long COVID. You don't want to play those odds, and this is why we need to mask, mitigate, ventilate, air air, um, air clean, you know, and, and basically have distancing and other measures in addition to uh, vaccines until we get to the 85, 90%. So up here in Canada, like I've, I've noticed like there, there's quite an inordinate gap between first doses and second doses compared to anywhere else. And there was yeah. a real, real <laughs> hyper focus on the first doses. And I found that all to be political. You get enough people with first doses and the numbers look nice and, and fluffy and, and they, they get to display that. Um, but in yeah. the United States it, is the lack of second doses more that, has there been a bit of indifference to getting the, the second dose? Oh, yeah. Like- the U.S. has hit the what we call the hesitancy frontier. It's it's really bad. Um, there are states, by the way, the correlation, someone did it. Each, if you map each state's um, percent Trump votes and percent fully vaccinated, the correlation of the R-square, by the way, is 0.71, the R-square. So the actual correlation, Pearson's correlation coefficient, is more is in like the range of like point, like 0.8, which is incredible. Like that's an incredible correlation. 
Um, but that also means that the the states that have really high Trump votes, their their actual fully vaccinated statewide average, statewide average is in the 30s for some of these states, 30% fully vaccinated. And if you look in some of these counties in the rural counties, there are some counties with less than 10. Like those are rare, but still there's a lot of counties with less than 15% fully vaccinated. It is abominably, abysmally low. And we see also in Missouri. Missouri, their hospitalizations, the case has been soaring. The hospitalization has been soaring. Um, there, there are hospitals that are now diverting. Springfield, Missouri hospital is so full, it is diverting to other hospitals in other states. It's full. Um, they're ordering another ICU ward. It's it's just insane. Like they, The crisis is full-blown in Missouri, um, and as well as entering crisis stage in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Uh, and Nevada has also seen surges as well. But, but Missouri is, in, is the epicenter right now. And it's just, it is bad. We've run into, has, we're running out of people. Like they're shutting down FEMA vaccine centers because there's no demand anymore. CVS and um, Walgreens are basically cutting the vaccine slots because, you know, there's no demand. And um, it's, it's quite sad, actually. So two things on that. Uh, first, if uh, President Trump was still in office, do you think that there would be, uh, as much as you, you don't want to imagine that, uh, it, would there be more favorability to the vaccines in some of those Republican-heavy counties? And then the second with, with uh, President Biden in office, is that's what, what's allowing what you referred to at the beginning of the conversation, or the you know, liberal elites having more of a rosy outlook to the, the present situation? Uh, that's a very loaded and multifactorial question. Um, I think, first of all, will the, if Trump was in office, would, would the conservative states and counties vaccinate more? Yeah. In certain ways, I'm not sure because Trump mm. never advertised that he got the vaccine, even though he did. We know quietly that he did from media reports. Although they will say it's fake news. Um, but we know he did. Um, but the issue right now, the biggest irony is that, you know, the conservatives say, you know, the vaccines were brought to you by President Trump. Thank you, President <laughs> Trump. As if he invented it. Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. If you want to thank President Trump the vaccines, then take it. But those people who are the loudest arguing for thank President Trump for vaccine, though these counties, you know, the, the, these states, the, the correlation again is, Pearson's correlation is over 0.8. They just not take it. They're just not taking it. So I'm not sure if if, if he was in president, if if, the, if they would take it at the same number, maybe a 5.0%, but nothing on the scale. Of, you're not going to bring a 15, 20% vaccinated uh, area up to 50% or uh, like, or 60% like uh, Israel. That's just not happening, right? And that's incredibly sad. As for the liberal bubble, I'm not sure. Um, we know the vaccine works. In certain ways, uh, <laughs> there might be, you know, greater skepticism of the CDC. So right now, in certain ways, with the Biden CDC saying you don't need a mask, which is 
completely opposite with WHO advice. WHO says if you're vaccinated, you should still mask. In certain ways, the Biden CDC saying you not need a mask has made liberal elites, you know, and many people I know, very, very complacent. Mm. That, that, oh, CDC says we don't do it. It's not Trump CDC. It's a Biden CDC. It must be guided by science. And, and it is, but it's not the preca- most precautionary science. Science, there is a, there's a range, right, of, of opinions. It's not the most precautionary science. And in certain ways, that's lulled a lot of, you know, the liberal elites into thinking, uh, everything's fine and dandy. You know, if it wasn't, the CDC wouldn't be telling us to do this all this. Anyways, I think, you know, if I was running pandemic response and <laughs> pandemic comms, I would do things many, many things differently, let's just say. Yeah. And, and on that versus like sort of the, the immediate empiricism versus, you know, gauging risk more so. Like um, you mentioned that not really enacting or not really taking on the precautionary principles, what uh, a lot of political leaders would take on. But I've seen that with a lot of uh, scientific experts would also uh, take that approach, wait, wait till what the data sees and, the, and then act accordingly. Yeah. And that's been what you've been against for a year and a half. No, 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 no. It, I, so I, I'm saying, yeah, that look, the science, there's emerging science, like just like from China. You know, Dr. Mike Ryan, I want to first quote, is the best. He's the head of emergency programs at WHO headquarters. Um, he says that in my all my decades of pandemic response, the greatest, greatest problem is the failure to act quickly. If you want to wait until you're 100% sure that you're right before you act, you will lose the pandemic. You will lose an outbreak and, out, and the control. You know, the don't let the, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? Like if you have to move based on imperfect information, that is the nature uh, of pandemic control. And that is kind of like anti-academia science philosophy. You know, academics, they don't want to say it, make any bold conclusions until they have a mountain of irrefutable evidence, which normally for most things, you know, does this XYZ cause cancer? You know, you can take that approach. Right. Mm-hmm. Cancer is not a fast burning thing. Cancer is always going on. And, and, you know, you can try to find a cure, but you want to be cautious and slowly find a cure. That's fine. But for a pandemic, that kind of attitude, that kind of cover your ass attitude that I don't dare speak what's actually in my head and on my mind of things that could stop the pandemic and save lives uh, because I'm trying to protect my ass and protect my reputation and, and that is what will get people killed. In certain ways, many people, many scientists are not brave enough to, to, to do this. Um, you know, I have, I've left academia. I'm not, I've, I've had my academia career for a long time. You know, uh, you know, top science scientists worldwide, but I'm not interested in, in citations or, or that kind of academia tenure track kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I care about policy change and driving public policy, public health action. And, and I have enough buffer that I could, you know, you, you know how some people say you have enough 
to give zero Fs about something, right? Mm-hmm. And in certain ways, I my where I am in my career, I could I can basically, you know, say no, I don't give a damn about my academia reputation, you know. And of course, when I first said the Holy Mother God, this is a pen, gonna be a thermonuclear pandemic on a scale not seen since 1918 pandemic of millions dead and blah, blah, blah. People hated me for the first month or two. People thought I was just, you know, said really mean things like charlatan, attention-seeking whore. You know, they, they said everything in the sun. You know, I wasn't famous in any way. So, you know, I just took it up the chin. Uh, you know, I, I had nothing. I, You know, during the whole pandemic, you know, I've, I have no books to promote, no website to promote. Um, you know, I had, I, had, I had one Patreon for one weekend, like, 14 months in as a, as an experiment for, for uh, Twitter by their request, yeah. they requested me to try out the new feature. Okay. I, you know, I deleted it because it wasn't what I am, but I have nothing. I, I, I'm not trying to peddle any merch. I'm not trying to um, profit off of anything, no website, no YouTube channel. You know, I, Um, maybe someday, but I do not really care for these things. I, I just want to share good information. And I think in many ways, uh, you know, you can badmouth me all you want, but at the end of the day, I just want to save lives. And, and that's, and people who know me and gotten to know me, um, know that that's why I care for. So, uh, but, but to get that redemption, it was, it's a very, um, sobering kind of redemption arc basically for what i said to become true a really horrific thing had to happen to this world mm-hmm. and that thing did happen it's not like i wished it it's not like i wanted that reputational damage for the first few months um but here we are and and here we are literally still not just in march of 2020 when people woke up we're in July of 2021 and there's still people, you know, eyes wide shut and half asleep and, you know, ostrich with their head in the sand, mm-hmm. especially as Delta is coming and they don't, they think they're still in the end of act one. We're in the start of act two, baby. And this act two is going to be worse than on the act one because the complacency will actually kill more mm-hmm. in many ways. As it is already done now. Um, you mentioned that you're no longer in the academy anymore. So is maybe that some of the reason that you have some people coming after you is, is there in the academy and, and you're outside of it? And, you know, who's this outsider to, you know, say well, this, that, and the, the other academia, thing? Well, academia has, you know, there's a lot of lane, lane checking. We call it lane checking, you know. But But I remind people, first of all, a virologist is not an epidemiologist. Virologist is a molecular biologist of viruses. You're not a person who actually who understands the, all the confounding structures of population health data like epidemiologists do. That's what we specialize in. Now, some people say, well, you're not an infectious disease epidemiology. My, my doctorate, my first doctorate was in epidemiology proper. It's the same doctoral exam as all these other people. There's a lot of academic checking. And then like, oh, you're not, not MD. I guarantee you most MDs know next to nothing about epidemiology, Mm -hmm. right? And their virology is pretty rudimentary. 
you know. So, and then of course there's the there's the tax, the political tax, because you know I went on the offensive to, with uh, Mexico for what the hell are you guys doing? You guys doing? You guys are not doing any testing. So the former Ministry of Health Minister of Health uh, uh, Julio Frank, who used to be the dean at Harvard when I was there, uh, you know he agreed with me. But the current coronavirus czar, uh, Lopez Gatel, you know, he's part of the, we don't need a test. Our hospital beds are not full. You know that. And, and lo and behold, Mexico has really horrendous deaths. And of course, Bolsonaro, I've attacked, uh, you know, their policies there. You know, he's made fun of people vaccinated and it could turn into, he joked, but in a weird way that you could turn into a reptile. It's, <laughs> When did he do that? And then, of that? course, he promotes hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin, both of which are not proven. Um, and then, of course, there's Putin. Uh, you know, there's lots of risk. As we know, there's Russian misinformation and disinformation actively on vaccines. Um, there's, there's countless people. And, of course, India really dropped the ball, right? Uh, India, so many people have died in India. Um, it's and of course, whenever you go on the political offensive against these people, they have their networks to try to smear you. But in certain ways, I'm I'm not touched. They can't touch me, right? Um, as long as I don't touch set foot in those countries for the next few years, yeah. <laughs> they can't touch me. No trips um, to Rio. No trips to Rio for a while. No trips to uh, to Russia. No trips to India for a while. Um, look, it's. You know, it, you know. Obviously, my profile has grown totally by accident, um, and uh, but the the more it grows, the greater, the bigger the target you become, right? And it's part of this. You know, many scientists. Um, you know, the only, there's only a few scientists I would say that's gotten more. You know, Fauci got attacked a lot. Um, Dr. Peter Hotez has gotten attacked even more than I have. But, but um, you know, for the most part, it's scientists being attacked is now like political football mm-hmm. on Fox News, among right-wing outlets, among political bad actors who try to write a smear hit piece or anything like that. Like, I don't, like, they could write all that. You know, they've written crazy things that I'm anti-vax and it's, and I'm like, I have no idea where the hell you, anyone who knows me knows I'm not an anti-vax. I'm the biggest vaccine proponent. But, but this is the nature of this pandemic. It is highly, highly political polarized. It is, even among those who are not, you know, conspiracy theorists, there are, there's enormous amount of disagreement. Enormous. Every scientist has their own personal biases political leanings, libertarian, you know, leanings, and many of what they want to, what they believe is the best policy radically uh, differs from another scientist. You know, so in certain ways, follow the science. It's a, it's a very subjective word. You can find a good scientist. Uh, you can find a bad one, a bad actor. You can find those who want to cherry pick one specific data. My, my my favorite example was actually just recently. UK, the hospitalizations are on the rise, right? 
But there was this one week of lull in June 21st to June 27th. I know the exact period in which there was a slight drop for a few, you know, it was um, it, in certain ways, there was other uh, things going on. There was the soccer tournaments and everything and people were partying and they didn't want to go to the hospital, you know, all these kind of things. Um, but then, you know, it was like March up, 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 a short dip. And then up, 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 that's, but of course the bad actors pick up this UK report that, you know, they report the hospitalization change per week. This week, there was no increase in hospitalization. In this narrow week, that's technically true. But if you look at the grand march, you know, it's a, it's a march forward. It's a march upward, very sharp march. But the one, there's cherry pickers who, you know, it's technically correct. It did not increase during that week. But if you look at the greater trend, it's been increasing six out of seven weeks and, and very sharply across all regions. It's not like a single blip of one region. It's across all of England, all of Scotland. It's, you can't deny it. But there are people who are scientists who don't, who are pro-reopening, Right pro-natural infection herd who thinks natural infection is the greatest salvation. You know, Scott Atlas, as you remember, was an MD, Trump's pandemic advisor, right? Mm -hmm. You can find doctors and scientists to say almost anything during a pandemic. It doesn't make it right, but politically, you know, everyone has political motivations uh, oftentimes. Um, I will say everyone has political opinions. And many of scientists have political motivations. And, um, you know, also denial of transmission in children is also one of those atrocious things that kids don't transmit. Kids are practically immunized. People have actually written that in major newspapers. And it was just the most horrendous thing. And, of course, you know, a week or two, you know, I called for that, uh, for the Atlantic to attract that paper. They didn't. Um, it got a lot of traction. Many, many scientists agreed with me. But of course, the scientist that, who wrote that article, of course, two weeks later, three weeks or a month later, starts attacking me mm. uh, on various nitpicking things as retribution for you know, attacking her. If this is, you know, and, and by the way, it's not, I was not attacking her. I was calling it, you know, outright false. There's, there's subjective things. There's, you know, cherry pick things in terms of outright falsehoods. I called that one out because it's an all outright falsehood. <laughs> and it, it's just who wrote that. This one? is a very long pen. Who wrote so, that yeah. one? In who wrote that one in in the Atlantic? I don't want to d- get into. Oh, it. <laughs> okay, okay. I was just curious. Um, but before I let you go, I want to jump into two other things. Like we, you mentioned Delta a whole bunch and all the issues surrounding that, but we have. Uh, two other friendly little variants that are knocking on our doors. There's the the Delta Plus, and uh, now there's more uh, attention being paid to the Lambda variant, if, if I have that correct, that's coming yeah. out of, of uh, Peru. Um, so what concerns do you have with, with those two? And, and do you know any specifics about them? I think it's still too early from what I've seen. I think it's still too early. Yeah. Delta Plus is has mutations of Delta plus another bad mutation. But, you know, from a precautionary principle, we got to be careful. Now, India raised it as a variant of concern. 
but WHO is not. But in certain ways, you know, we did not know how dangerous Delta was because we didn't have sequencing, genome, laboratory capacity, and good epidemiology in India. So, you know, we're still kind of in the dark about that. Lambda, you know, emerged from Peru. Peru also has no testing capacity or genome sequencing capacity like, you know, UK or US does. So it's still a big mystery. Now it's in 30 countries, I believe, including the UK, as well as the US and Chile and many other neighboring countries. You know, as worrisome mutations um, from, you know, pandemic precautionary perspective, yes, I agree, we need to be cautious. And Peru is one of the highest excess mortality countries in the pandemic. But actually, it is, I think, one of, like, number one, two, one of the highest um, excess mortality countries. So, you know, Peru is not a laughing matter. You know, if a variant that rises from Peru is definitely more worrisome than a variant that rises from, say, Canada, because I don't think Canada is going to see a really bad variant per se, because you know, Canada's not let the virus burn through. Although I can't say that much for for uh, for British Columbia and Alberta, because God, British Columbia's health chief health officer, Doctor Bonnie, Bonnie Henry, is Bo- just Bonnie Henry. Yeah. Bonnie Henry, yeah, is just one of the densest. Like she was denied <laughs> airborne for the longest time. She denied P one was more infectious. She denied that P one had reinfection potential. She denied like. She denies still that Delta is more severe. Oh, you know, yep. like she, in certain ways, she reads the literature of those denialists. We call them not denialists, but downplayers. Downplayers. Right. right. The downplaying crew of, of COVID. Of the, it's all fine, it's rosy, everything's great kind of thing. And of course, just, you know, a lot, not everyone reads academic literature. You know, I spent my early career in, in academia. I used to teach meta-analysis. So whenever you teach meta-analysis and systematic reviews, what you literally do is read papers. Like I, years ago, I did a, one of the largest meta-analysis on, on Vioxx. I don't know if you remember that drug, pain drug, Vioxx, Celebrex. Oh, okay, um, yeah, Celebrex, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're COX two inhibitors. I did one of the largest meta analysis. I was one of the whistleblowers, several. Not, not. I was in, I wasn't the only one. But God, I poured through so many papers and studies. Like you need to know how to read these studies, and decipher, and and most people are not epidemiologically trained. You know, most MDs are not trained in reading papers, right? Trained in reading epidemiology papers. Just like I'm not trained in reading virology papers per se, like I can figure it out, but I wouldn't really know that this is the wrong method, right? This is a bad study because they use the wrong method. I wouldn't know that in in virology, but I would know that in epidemiology. You show me an epidemiology study, and I said, "Well, this is a trash study." Um, but most of these public health uh, doctors have no experience in this, and Bonnie Henry is one of those people who she. She just parrots what almost what she says with natural infection, blah, 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 not airborne. No, kids don't transmit. Oh, we don't need to mask kids. 
Um, you know, Delta variant is not so more severe. P1s, blah, 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 is not more infectious. Or, but all this stuff comes from the same, same what we'll call it, Great Barrington friendly or Great, Great Barrington adjacent curious, mm. you know, <laughs> pro-infection, pro-reopening crowd. They're not like outright conspiracy theorists. They're not like outright, you know, right-wing smearing people, but they are clearly downplayers. And one thing we know that during the pandemic, downplaying is what has gotten us into this mess, right? Yeah. The downplaying is what led the UK to delay, you know, border quarantines and travel, uh, you know, uh, um, testing and, you know, tr- you know, travel restrictions for different countries and slow lockdowns, weak lockdowns. You know, all these things were, were a function of these downplaying people. And that's the greatest, saddest thing that science, yes, science is science, but science can be easily bastardized, easily twisted, easily using a narrow, narrow focus window to describe what they want, their worldview is, and to cherry pick what they want as their narrative. Yeah, and, and, and that's happened quite a bit. And, and you know, stupidity has really crossed partisanship. Like you mentioned all the problems with, with British Columbia, which are massive. And massive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so you have, just like in Sweden with, with the government in British Columbia, you have, yeah. a, you have the Social Democrats, but yet they're just, uh, their their policies aren't. All too, you need is yeah, one. There's many like liberal scientists who are just not, you know, they're like some are based in San Francisco. You know, the the one that basically said, "Oh, hospitalization is not going up; it's it's flat or going down." That's a San Francisco, you know, like liberal scientist. Mm. It's just the the, the the the. Oh, by the way, that same scientist uh, had said uh, India had already achieved herd immunity. India will not have a second wave. <laughs> back in January, February, boy, was that person wrong. I won't name names, but oh my God, that person has led to so much uh, strife and, you know, hurt and so much damage. And, you know, this downplaying dismissing is what literally allows this pandemic to keep going. If we went for zero COVID precaution principle, we weren't, you know, early on, we didn't know if there was human to human transmission, but we could take a precaution. We didn't know if there was asymptomatic transmission, but we could take a precaution, even though there's a lot of evidence. We weren't sure if if 14 days is long enough. We weren't sh- as uh, quarantine. Um, we weren't sure if uh, you know testing negative means that you're actually negative. We weren't sure about so many things. But had we taken the precautionary principle, we wouldn't be in this place. And of course, the greatest greatest thing was airborne denial, airborne yeah, transmission denial was part of the lexicon from a lot of these, you know, not just Bonnie Henry, but a lot of these traditional mainline virologists and infectious disease doctors, which by the way, airborne transmission is a field of environmental engineering. So the the world experts in airborne particles uh, are the environmental engineers, the aerosol scientists. These are climate engineers, you know, environmental building design, the ventilation engineers, these are the world experts in air, airborne viruses. Not some, not a molecular biologist who under, 
or a geneticist. A molecular biologist or geneticist is not an expert in airborne virus transmission dynamics whatsoever. But yet they were the one who were the most cited because, oh, they're virus experts. Yeah, they're geneticists and molecular biologists of viruses, not airborne transmission dynamics of viruses. And they weren't, and the aerosol scientists were not heard for the longest time. And it's, it's the greatest, greatest tragedy that these experts who actually know what they're talking about were silenced by the old, there's entire articles written on this, how the hell we screwed this up. But they were silenced by the old guard of virologists and infectious disease. Everything. So in terms of the lane checkers, those virologists, infectious disease um, doctors who thought they knew better, they did not. And because they dismissed the other side because they, their, their party line is that there is no airborne transmission for sources of these coronavirus particles, that cost millions of lives. And I'm, I'm putting it out there. History will remember who you are. And it's not just the Bonnie Henrys of the world. We're talking about like academic scientists who downplay this. History will remember who you are. And I think if you're still going to play this lack of um, precautionary principle, then you're really, really guilty. You know, you're wrong once. And if you still try to downplay lane check, that that will ultimately be not acceptable in the history books. And history will remember those people. And I really, really hope that we will have, we will have uh, an accounting of what happened, right? That that accurate history books will be written about this, and you know, I don't need to be in it. I I just I just I'm just sharing data, and I think what really matters is who were the policy leaders who actually had the thumb on the policy, who were the advisors to the policy leaders. Who are the people who are actually influencing these policy leaders the most? Uh, and then telling them you don't need airborne transmission guidance. Oh, surgical masks for healthcare workers are totally fine. Whenever clearly that is not true. Shame on you for being wrong once and dismissing aerosol scientists. There and But second strike, if you try to you know, downplay and dismiss uh, the precautionary principle, you know, history will really judge you. And, and I really hope that, um, you know, there will be at least some justice and at least some, some accounting of what happened. So right now, let's move forward. Let's push our policy leaders to do better. Mm-hmm. And let's push our scientists to work together and not cherry pick the data and focus on precautionary principle. Because as Dr. Mike Ryan says, if you want to be right before you act, you will always lose. You'll never win against this pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, perfection is the enemy of good. You know, move fast, have no regrets. That is the way to stop this pandemic or any pandemic. And so kudos to Dr. Mike Ryan. Hope that I get to meet him someday. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say I agree with you that, you know, I think a lot of this is going to come back to bite some people. Misdeeds typically re- return to haunt. Um, I, I think it's time I should let you go, Eric. Is, is there any other messages you want to throw out to every, anybody? And, and, and also, where can people keep tabs on you? 
Well, oh, you keep tabs on Twitter, Doctor at Doctor Dr. Eric Ding. Um, you know that's my main platform. Uh, no, I have no YouTube channel, no no <laughs> website. You don't have to subscribe to anything. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say the parting message is: tell your public health leaders that the risk of long-term hospitalization and long COVID of kids and long COVID of any young adults is a price that's way too high. Don't just look at the deaths. Don't just look at the hospitalizations. COVID is a debilitating illness for many, many people. And do not just focus on how many empty hospital beds and ICU beds you still have free. If you use that as your moral compass, we would be living in a world run by fountainhead and rand activists who want no laws whatsoever. And that's not the society we want to live in. We want to live in a safe and just society. And safety and justice and public health go hand in hand. And with that, please advocate for our future generation, our children, and protecting them from long-term debilitating uh, disease like COVID. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor, Jeff, at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farton. It's at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.